Let's take our Bibles and continue through the book of Acts. This morning we're in the first part of chapter 15. One of the realities that we know and we experience as we serve the Lord is exactly what I've been sensing for the last 30 minutes, and that is that there is going to be opposition anytime we stand for Him. There is always going to be a, a resistance to us walking with the Lord. We've seen that all throughout the book of Acts. There's no question that it continues in our time, and I believe it's getting progressively more prevalent. I believe the opposition is becoming stronger and stronger, and I don't think we've seen anything yet. And Jesus told us this was to be expected. He told us that because of him, that the opposition was going to be against him, not against us. We're not supposed to take it personally. We're not supposed to get all worried about it and stressed about it. We're not to back down. We're just to continue to continue to share the gospel and speak the truth in love and live out our faith. And Acts 15 is another example. I don't know if, if you're getting weary. Sometimes as I study, I think, how many times are they going to get opposed? Acts 15 is another example of objections. Another example of times when Christ is being resisted and what is being taught is being twisted. And, and, and there's just, a, there's just a, a group reacting against what's going on. Anytime we sense that, we need to go back to the Lord and we need to call on the Lord. It's another reason why tonight is so important. Don't miss tonight. Okay? If, if I'm gauging it right and there is a heaviness in this room and, and some of you are, are discouraged this morning, you need to be here tonight. We need to call on the Lord. And if you need us to pray for you, we'll surround you and pray for you. But anytime we see this opposition, we have to go back to the Lord and ask Him for His help. Now, Paul and Barnabas have traveled back to Antioch. We saw that at the end of last week. And that's where the gospel was birthed outside of the confines of Israel. And it was where they launched this first trip to the Gentiles. Believers were first called Christians at Antioch. They first took the name of Christ formally in this city. And the city had developed a lot of spiritual momentum. Now it's kind of a training ground for the Gentile believers. It's a place where they're being educated and encouraged and matured in their faith. And that really is, is an example of what every church should be. Every church really should have two purposes. On one hand, it should be a spiritual emergency room. For, for those who have not yet known Christ and trusted in Christ, people who are damaged by sin, as we all have been, people who are hurting, people who are discouraged, people who need a, a, a touch from the Lord, this should be a spiritual ER for anyone that is in that condition. And it also should be uh, what we call a teaching hospital. We had all our children at Northwestern Hospital down in Chicago, and it's called a teaching hospital. So anytime you have an appointment, uh, they bring in a couple interns or students with them, and they, and they walk through the process. Well, that's what the church should be. The church should be a teaching hospital as we mature in our faith and as we grow in our knowledge of the Lord and as we encourage and strengthen each other. So the church has those two purposes. It needs to be a place of truth. It needs to be, as we call it, a place to be refreshed. Somewhere where, the, where those who are not saved will become aware that they can be washed clean of their sin through Jesus Christ. And those of us who have trusted Christ can be encouraged and strengthened by the Spirit of God and by the Word of God. Now, in places where that's happening, how do you think the enemy is going to try to fight that? We know that he always wants to confuse and divide us. So in the case of the church of Antioch, he sends false teachers in. 
And he does that to try to hinder what's been going on, but because the disciples have been teaching for a long time. We saw that at the end of chapter 14. They've, they've been there a while. So the way he tries to offset that is to go in and damage the progress that has been made and try to cut down and confuse the education that's been happening. Now notice, we're going to read in just a minute, notice that it says that these men came down from Judea. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Let's read and then we'll uh, develop that a little bit. Start in verse 1, chapter 15, the book of Acts. Some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren. Unless you are circumcised, they said, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren, that's all the believers, determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, verse 5, who had believed, stood up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. The apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of God, excuse me, the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test? By placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they also are. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Paul and Barnabas as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Now again, notice back in verse 1 that it says that these men came down from Judea. That is not an insignificant detail that the Spirit includes. Apparently, these guys were presenting themselves as part of the church in Jerusalem and, and were acting like they had a commission, that, that they had the same mind as the apostles in Jerusalem who apparently had heard about this mess in Antioch and were frustrated about it and sent them down to kind of correct the error and correct the void in their teaching and kind of make things right. That's not what happened. That's what they said what was happening. So they come down and they kind of say, well, you know, we need, to, we need to clear some things up. And they present themselves, you see in the verse, as teachers. And apparently, somehow, they gain the attention of the believers in Antioch. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 2. He says, these false teachers were secretly brought in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, in order to bring us into bondage. In other words, they came down to contradict what we knew about Christ and to take us back into the bondage that the law put us under. And they did that by saying, unless the Gentiles are also circumcised according to the custom of Moses, they cannot be saved. Now this is a very serious event in the church's history. And this precipitates what we call in chapter 15 the Jerusalem Council, which will talk about in a couple of minutes. But, but this was a very serious problem. And it, and it had 
uh, enough steam to it that we see it throughout the rest of the New Testament, especially in the book of Galatians. That's why Paul was so clear in that Galatians 2 passage about saying that's not the right teaching. There are a couple of things that I want you to note about. I encourage you to take some notes this morning because I feel like we're, we're not fully engaged. So let's, let's really interact with the text now and kind of um, listen with both ears and with pens and with our hearts. A couple of things I want you to see here. First of all, notice in verse 1 that they specify that their teaching was as the custom or ritual of Moses. Now that's technically true because this was in the law that was given to Moses. But instead of saying, hey, this is what God established, they say that these rituals and variations of the law that have kind of taken place over the last thousand years are what we really need to focus on because those rituals and variations had become more important to them than what God actually said. Moses was revered by the Jews. He meant everything to them, but he meant nothing to the Gentiles. They didn't care about Moses. They had no connection to Moses. So this is not just an appeal by the Jews for their national pride. Hey, you need to hear what what the man said. You need to hear what Moses said. Instead, this is a subtle admission that this is not really the requirement of the Lord. The Lord gave the law. The Lord was clear about the law. But he also said, as we'll study in a minute, that the law, the restrictions of the law ended because Christ introduced a new covenant. But they're still living by it. And they value it so much as a priority that, that they're now saying the Gentiles have to do this too. Listen, listen, this is, this is what we're under. So the Gentiles also have to abide by it. And here's the first warning of the Spirit in the text. The first warning of the Spirit in the text, and this applies pretty much to every avenue of our doctrine and our practice. I want you to really listen now. If it is an instruction or tradition of man, instead of doctrine directly from the Word of God, it is invalid. If man is saying, this is what it says, and we can't prove it undeniably from the Word of God, then it's rubbish. And if there's a greater emphasis on a doctrine or practice than the Lord tells us to have, then it's something that we need to guard against. As we'll see later, nothing in Scripture says that the Gentiles had to adhere to the rituals of the law. In fact, it was just the opposite. But the Jews were living by their customs rather than by what the Lord had told them. And this is where we walk a very fine line as believers. Because the traditions and practices and things that we have seen practiced somewhere else or been told is the right way indelibly shape us in terms of what we believe. But unless they are proven from Scripture, they lose credibility. So we have a lot of traditions in the church. We have a lot of things that we've known growing up. If you grew up in the church, you knew that a lot of things were were established as this is the way to do it. And they weren't. They were just things that we were comfortable with or things that were the trend of the time or or things that that somebody decided this would be a good way to do it. When you go back 30 years, everybody had a hymn book. You didn't stand in church singing without a hymn book. You looked down and you're at, how many remember hymn books, okay? Several of you, I hope. Now the trend is hymn books. What's a hymn book? Anybody under 25 doesn't know what a hymn book is, right? Now it's just screens, multimedia, and, and smoke, 
and mirrors in some places. And, and I, I heard about a church the other day that spent $85 million on production. Now, that's not necessarily wrong. We can't say biblically, well, you can't do that. If that's what reaches that very wealthy segment of the town that they're in, then so be it. If that's what God ordains, go for it. But I'm just saying the trends have changed. In another 20 years, we probably won't be staring at screens. It'll probably be implanted in our forehead. We'll just see the words in our mind, right? Something's going to happen. But it changes. So the traditions we had in 1950 were not the traditions we had in 1980. We're not the traditions we have in 2012. So what's right? Well, none of it's right. None of it is what the Bible says. It's what we've developed. And we have to be careful in our traditions and our practices, A, that we don't get proud, and B, that we don't say, well, this is what we're supposed to do because this is what God told us to do. Well, it may be, but it's not true for everybody. $85 million on production doesn't work here. It works there. It doesn't work in China. And what they're doing in China works. What they're doing in this place works. What they're doing in that place works. You get my point? Let's be careful that we're not saying, well, this is what's most important. We have to be careful not to confuse the issue or get in the Spirit's way of teaching and conviction and the call to faith. That's why I believe this study of the early church in Acts has been so important for us because it's gotten back to the purity of the ministry. So the first error, you got it? is that they said, this is what Moses told us. The second error is that they try to add a legal requirement to salvation by faith alone. Notice that they don't say that, you know, Gentiles, it would be really nice if you honored the law, because we've really honored the law, and, and it, would be, it would be wonderful if, if you kind of made a show of good faith with us so we could all be unified as one body, because we're so thrilled that you Gentiles are part of the body. This is... This is awesome. So it would be great, just as a show of faith, if you would adhere to the law of circumcision. That's not what they're saying. They bring in a false doctrine in an attempt to intentionally deceive the Gentiles, Gentile believers. The reason circumcision was so important to the Jews is that it was a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham that the shedding of blood and the removal of flesh was a picture of the removal of sins through faith. But once Christ fulfills the law, I know this is heady stuff, but stay with it. Once Christ fulfilled the law, he says there's a new covenant through my own blood. In other words, I'm going to shed the blood. My flesh is going to be harmed. I'm going to be ripped apart so that this will be a permanent removal of sin so that when you trust in me, now here's a new rule of law. Here's a new covenant that I'm introducing, and it's based on my grace and my forgiveness through me. So circumcision, this, this act of removal of flesh and the shedding of blood that was a picture of, of, of uh, connection and relationship with God in the Old Testament. Christ says that was wonderful, but that doesn't apply anymore. Now I'm the one who's the new covenant. That was the old covenant. Now I'm the new covenant. Baptism now is the symbol of the new covenant because we are identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. That now is what symbolizes that we are with Christ. So they're teaching a theological regression. They're saying we need to go back to the law 
But that's the covenant that was replaced. And Paul says in Galatians 3, we weren't saved by the law because we can't obey it. So all the law was designed to do was to be a tutor, a a teacher, a guide to lead us to Christ so we can be justified by faith. It shows the holy expectation of God, but, but we don't follow the custom and rituals. The law is great because it says, here's how you should live. But we're not bound to its rituals because Christ said, I have a new covenant. Now, the final part of their false teaching, third, look at this, is that is, is, it's kind of an extension of the second one. They say no one can be saved without being circumcised. Now, not only was it a gross error to try to add something to faith in Christ, but now they say that salvation is not possible without circumcision. And that, right there at the end of verse 1, is a denial of everything that Christ had done. We're saved by God's grace alone. We are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. Ephesians 2, 8-9 makes it clear that our works are not enough, and even obeying the works of the Old Testament law are not enough. Even Abraham, the one they revere and the one they elevate, and even Moses, the one they said, we need to follow his law, they both disobeyed God. They both broke the law. And Hebrews 11 said they were both saved by their faith, not by their works. So this is a very serious thing. This is an attack on the church, an attack on doctrine. It's not just some attempt by the Jews to elevate Judaism and try to gain a hand of superiority. This is, this is a deliberate and dangerous act of heresy. So how are they going to react to it? Well, look at the text in verse 2. We're only to verse 2, but trust me, we're halfway through. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that they and some others should go up to Jerusalem. Now, stop and look at the first part of that for a second. Paul and Barnabas, when they hear this heresy being taught, and when they see that people are starting to listen to it, they go right after it. It says they have dissension. They they are in strong, strong disagreement. And they get into an argument to try to, to... diminish the effect of this false teaching. Now, there's no yieldedness on the men from Judea who came down. That's why Paul and Barnabas don't accomplish everything they set out to do. But we know from Paul's ability to argue things and to express doctrine that he certainly had to make some headway. But the false teaching has some legs. People are are listening to it. People are starting to be affected by it. There's debate, there's discussion. Is this really right? What should we listen to? We better get an arbitrator because we don't know what is really right. So they send them up to Jerusalem to try to get some clarity from the apostles. Now, I want you to notice something before we look at what happens in Jerusalem. And I want you to notice in verse 2 how this attack on doctrine interrupted the ministry in Antioch. The gospel had developed a foothold. They had been there for a while. They had been teaching and training disciples, people maturing in their faith. But but now the enemy wants to try to stop that. He wants to try to hinder that. Sometimes he doesn't need to completely block something. He just needs to provide an interruption. But while he's trying to stop and interrupt and, and, and kind of distract what's going on, the Lord uses that attack, listen now, to repurpose their ministry. 
They had been there a long time. They had done a good job of developing and training. He says, you're going to go up to Jerusalem. I know that was their decision, but I'm going to use it because God can use anything that happens for his purpose. So he gives them new opportunities in Phoenicia and Samaria where they might not have gone. If you guys would put up that map for just a second, let me show you where this is, okay? Instead of a pen, let me pull out the laser pointer. This is Phoenicia right here, this area up above and to the left of the Sea of Galilee. And then this is Samaria right in here. So they're coming down from Antioch, which is up on the ceiling. Everybody see Antioch on the ceiling? All right. They're coming down from Antioch through here. Towns of Tyre and Sidon are in here, major cities that were part of what was called the Decapolis, 10 major cities. This is Phoenicia right here. So they're ministering, going from town to town, talking about the gospel. And then they work their way down into this area. Nazareth is right in here. They're working down into Samaria. And they're continuing to share the gospel and continuing to talk about what God was doing in their midst. Now, this is modern-day Lebanon. Beirut is right where that little jut-out is uh, on the land. I'm sure that's the official term, the jut-out. But you can see how pivotal this was and how close this was to Israel. And as it is now, at the time, both of those areas were hostile against Judaism and against the gospel and against everything. The Phoenicians, which is at the top of the screen, they worshipped Baal. They loved child sacrifice, and they practiced it regularly. The Samaritans had idols that were false, and they had high places, and they were natural enemies of the Jews. So as they leave Antioch, it's not like the winds of refreshing blow, and they have a wonderful journey and go from place to place, and everything is great. They're going from the frying pan into the fire in terms of their audience. And yet, look at verse 3. As they talked about Christ and how the gospel had gone to the Gentiles, it says, many trusted in Christ and were filled with joy. It really struck me this week that many of the people who had had God's favor for so long, the Jews who were religious and had the word of God and had seen God's hand for thousands of years, the people who had had God's favor were more hostile to other people becoming believers, and the people who had rejected God and wanted nothing to do with God, who now have their hearts changed by God, are full of joy that people are coming to Christ. Some people are just never happy, and it's usually because they don't get their way or because the focus isn't on Him. And that may be the case with the Jews there. Maybe there's some self-pity. Well, we had to be circumcised and they didn't. Why? That's not fair. Or, or maybe they feel like Judaism is being marginalized. Well, you know, what happened to the traditions and the law and, and all the history and what God's done? Now these Gentiles are just going to come in and be part of the body? They haven't earned their way. But what, what's the deal here? Why, why do they get to cut the line? You, you, you know, you can hear the discussion, right? You can hear people up in arms and talking in the synagogue and talking in the square and talking at home with their family. I can't believe these dirty Gentiles are coming in and being a part of the body. How could that be? How could God allow that? We've been adhering to the law all these years. I think they should have to be circumcised too. That's what's happening here. Feel the text. Get some emotion into the text. This isn't just, and they thought that the Gentiles should be circumcised. Don't read your Bible that way. Get a feel for, for the visceral emotion that's in this. There is a strong cry of, 
this is not fair. And that selfish bias creates conflict and division in the church because selfish bias always creates conflict in the church. And where there should be joy and praise to the Lord for what He's doing and how the ministry is expanding and how thousands and tens of thousands of people are coming to Christ and how the body of Christ has become this powerful voice. Instead of all that that should have been there, the the air just slowly gets pulled out of the balloon. And the spirit of what's going on deflates. An attitude can do that. Selfishness can do that. Listen, I hope in this church we never lose our excitement about people's lives being changed. And I hope we never say that person's different than me so I can't accept them. And I pray, and I hope you pray, that we never lose our joy over what God is doing in our midst, even if it makes us uncomfortable or causes us have to yield what we think is best. Church, don't ever let that happen to us. I'm going to do everything I can never to let that happen to us. Because the air will just be pulled out. Just like, there's so much to praise God over. There's so much that we can express joy to the Lord. Think of what the choir just sang. I will bless your name. I will bless your name. I will bless your name forevermore. In other words, we bless Him now. It means we praise Him and give Him what He is due. And then forever, for all of eternity, we're going to stand in heaven. We're going to sing that. We bless you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. We bless you, Lord. You're never, ever going to get tired of it. You think, well, that's a long time to say, I bless you, Lord. You're never going to get tired of it because you're going to be in the presence of God and you're going to go, I cannot believe you saved me. I can't believe you would accept me and declare me holy. How could that be? So let's not get caught up in, in what, oh, I, I'm a little out of my, out of my zone and, and those people shouldn't be there. Now, come on, we're bigger than that. God is bigger than that. Look at what happens next. It says in verse 4 that they finally arrive in Jerusalem and the church is filled with joy at all that's taken place. But again, there's a group of peer, people that's irritated that God's working. Three guesses on who it is. But it's interesting that while it's the Jews and it's the Pharisees, it's not the Pharisees that we'd expect. The text says that these are Pharisees who had belief. In other words, they're just like Paul. Paul was the Pharisee of Pharisees, he says in Philippians 3. He was the top dog. He was the main man. If you wanted to look at what a Pharisee was, you looked at Paul. But Paul's life had been changed and he had believed. Now there's a group of Pharisees who would experience the same thing. You would think that when Paul walks into town, it would be like a family reunion, that they would embrace him and say, oh, yeah, we relate to you. We know exactly what you're going through. But instead, they take the same position as the teachers in Antioch, and they say the Gentiles are going to have to be circumcised. They're going to have to observe Moses' law. Now, the reaction to this should have been swift and strong. What we see in verse 2 should happen in verse 5. But here's something I want you to see. In verse 5, there is a momentary hesitation. And this is one of the weaker moments for the apostles in the book of Acts. They know this is wrong. They know that Paul and Barnabas had confronted it in Antioch. 
And yet when the pastors and the apostles and the senior statesmen get together, they don't act in confidence. Instead, they take time to discuss and debate the merits of the idea. How many great spirit-led decisions come from debating merits? Let's debate the merits. That'll be great. Let's take a lot of time to analyze and analyze and analyze and analyze and analyze to death until we're all frustrated and yelling at each other. Now, am I saying that it's not wise to make careful decisions? Absolutely not. It is absolutely wise to be careful in our decision-making. Here's the problem. The delay and hesitation in this text comes from two problems. The first one is, if you look at the text, there is absolutely no record from the Holy Spirit that they prayed or sought the Lord. All throughout Acts, we see when they had to make a decision, they called on the Lord. When the church was expanding, they called on the Lord. Before people got saved, they called on the Lord. When they had to make a decision, they called on the Lord. When people were in jail, they called on the Lord. When there was uh, opposition, they called on the Lord. And yet right here, when the future of doctrine is being debated, we see no evidence that they called on the Lord. Instead, they examined and disagreed and argued because if they were unanimous, there wouldn't have been a debate. Imagine how these verses would have read if between verse, uh, let me see it, in between verse 6 and verse 7, it said, and they had a huge prayer meeting. And they got on their faces and they said, Lord, teach us what's right. This is the importance, and I keep saying it, but this is the importance to tonight. A lot of us got, got excited the other night about being in that church, and I started to see it in people's eyes, and they said, boy, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be awesome if we had a building? Imagine, imagine what we could do in a building. You, you got the vision for it. So tonight, we're going to spend concentrated time at prayer meeting to say, Lord, what's our future? Do you want us to have a building? Do you want us to have a property? And if so, and we've been looking for a long time, if so, where is it? What's the timing of what you want us to do? And how will you have us to pay for it? I have nothing to show you. I'm not going to show you a piece of property or some building that we're looking at. We're looking at nothing right now. I'm just going to say there's no agenda other than to say, Lord, if that's what you're calling us to right now, and I think a lot of us are sensing that God wants us to move forward in this. If that's what you're calling us to, then you give us guidance. You help us to make the decision. That's what they should have done in Acts 2. Or excuse me, Acts 15. That's what they should have done. They should have said, Lord, give us guidance. Because the second reason... That they, that they made a mistake should have been the most obvious. Their answer to this incorrect teaching should have been easy, and yet they made it hard. Everything that Jesus had said and done pointed to the law being fulfilled and the gospel going to the Gentiles and there being no distinction between Jew and Gentiles. In fact, they didn't even have to quote Jesus because two of the main figures in this text knew that truth in their own lives. All of the apostles that were there had heard Jesus' teaching firsthand. They had personally witnessed the new covenant being introduced. You remember at the Last Supper, Jesus says, this blood is the new covenant in my blood. In other words, they were right there as eyewitnesses when Jesus said, 
here it is. And then they watched at the cross and they saw the empty tomb and they said the new covenant that Jesus talked about at dinner, that's now in play. Then you've got Paul, who is the very person chosen by the Lord to take the gospel to the Gentiles, having undergone a radical transformation so he could be in that position. And then you've got Peter, who Christ said, I'm going to build my church upon you. And then he went to Caesarea in chapter 10 and had a vision. And God said, take and eat. What you consider to be unclean is no longer unclean. And that meant now the Gentiles are part of the body. So you've got all the apostles, you've got Paul, and you've got Peter. They should have immediately been able to say, "Uh uh-uh, time out, this is wrong. What you are saying is not true from Scripture. It comes back to Christ and Christ alone, and we are accepted through our faith in Christ. It's not the rituals and the rules of the law, and there should have been an instant overruling of the argument without any debate or any discussion because absolutely none was needed. They should have affirmed the Gentiles as part of the body of Christ, and they should have rebuked these false teachers. But that's not what they do immediately. There is always going to be objection to what the Lord says is right, but that should only cause us to defend it even more. And that finally, look at the end of the text, that's finally what Peter does. He stands up and he makes the case for the Gentiles. And notice, Peter doesn't cop an attitude. He doesn't walk up and say, all right, everybody. I am the man, I just want to remind you, I am the man that Christ established his church on. I think I have credibility here. I was at the empty tomb, and I denied Christ. I was that zealous, I I denied Christ. And I'm, I'm proud of it because it shows how fervent I am. And you guys need to listen to me. That's not what he says. He says, let me remind you that when Christ went back to heaven, he said, by my mouth, and and I don't understand why, because I'm a a loud mouth, I'm a hothead, but I'm telling you, he said, by by my mouth, the gospel is going to go forth. And at Pentecost, that's what happened. I stood up, and, and, and the Spirit of God just took over, and thousands and thousands of people are saved, and God gave us a boldness and a power, and we've gone forward. But we have never compromised on the fact that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 8, look at it. He says, here's what really drives home the point. In case there's any debate about whether the Gentiles should be included, here's what gets the point. God evaluates the heart of every person, and he knows whether any of us is sincere in our trust in Christ and our desire to be purified and and sanctified and completely committed to Him. And it's been that way since man was created. And you Jews want to talk about our history? There, There are some great examples. Abraham, who passed the test of of being willing to sacrifice his son to obey the Lord. And and Saul, who, who had the favor of God, but his heart wasn't right. He loved himself more than he loved to obey the Lord. And then David, who was a man after God's own heart. And Daniel, who purposed in his own heart to, to not be corrupted and stood for the Lord. And, and, and there's even recent history. We saw it with Ananias and Sapphira, who acted like they were believers, but, but their hearts were corrupt and deceptive. He says, God always looks on the heart. So if we want to evaluate whether our Gentile brothers are really brothers, whether they're really disciples with us, 
Just look at what God's done in their heart. And here's what really cut. He essentially says, God is not impressed by obedient actions if they're not paired with faith and love for Him. God doesn't care that you're obeying the law if if your heart isn't soft toward Him. He doesn't care that, that you're rigidly doing what He said to do if you're not doing it out of love for Him. If you're just doing it for a show, as the Pharisees certainly were. Or if you're just doing it to earn points, which is not good enough because you can never have enough points, then you're doing it wrong. Look at what's happened to the Gentiles. Look at their heart. Look at how they've changed. The Gentiles have believed. And then he says God went an extra step. Look at verse 8. If that isn't enough, that he knows their heart, he also gave them the Holy Spirit. Now, none of us can mark, uh, argue with that because he told us that the Holy Spirit will be the mark and the seal. So how can any of us say that they should not be included? And then there's a third proof. He says in verse 9 that God has torn down the wall of distinction between Jews and Gentiles. And he proved it by cleansing their hearts by faith. Not by the law, but by their trust in Christ. In other words, the Gentiles have done more than just pray a prayer. The evidence is clear from their lives that their hearts are purified and sanctified. So Peter asks the final question. He makes the final statement, the final argument in verse 10. Why then would we resist bringing them into the body? And why then would we require them to obey a law that none of us can even obey? Why would we tell them they have to do something that we ourselves haven't been able to do? And let me remind you that Christ says that if that, that righteousness is only through Him. Paul talks about it later in Galatians. He says if righteousness comes from the law, then Christ died in vain. There was no point for Him to go to the cross if we can obey enough to get into heaven. Christ suffered for nada. He suffered for nothing. He went to the cross and, and put Himself there for no reason because we can save ourselves. How foolish would that be? And He says that to them. Why would you think that? So then, Jews, isn't it logical that if we can't obey the law and we're saved by faith, then the Gentiles are too? Why would we make them be circumcised? And look at the response. We're done. Look at the response in verse 12. It says, all the people were silent. There was no more debate. There was no more argument. The explanation made sense. Christ had affirmed it. They had experienced it. And it's fascinating in the middle of the verse, it says that they turned back to Paul and Barnabas and they listened differently now. And now that the wall of objection was broken down, they say, all right, guys, tell us what's been happening in Samaria and Phoenicia and the cities of Asia Minor. Tell us what's going on in Antioch. And Paul and Barnabas give amazing evidence of God's work in their own midst. You know, sometimes the Lord has to challenge our objections. Sometimes He has to go after why we don't trust and why we don't obey and why we hold a position 
that's in variation to what the Word of God says. And he does that for the purpose of reshaping our thinking so that we would be conformed to him and so we would have a greater understanding of what he's doing. God will never be adverse to allowing opposition in our lives or changing our circumstances or putting us through discomfort so that we will be in line with what he wants in our lives. Every one of us in some way has experienced that over the last year and a half just by being part of this church. God takes us through difficulty. He allows opposition. He moves our circumstances. And he allows discomfort because he does that so that our hearts would be open and receptive to his work in our lives and the way he wants to teach us and use us in powerful ways. I don't know about you this morning, but I want to be used of the Lord in powerful ways. I want this church to be used of the Lord in powerful ways. It's unbelievable in a year and a half the opportunities the Lord has given us in this city. And we have truth to give out when people are uncertain and when people are confused because sin corrupts the mind, we're able to give them clarity and say, you can be washed by the blood of Christ. And the Lord can silence their objections by showing them His mercy and His forgiveness. We have the Holy Spirit, His power in our lives, and He gives us confidence in those times of difficulty and challenge. And He enables us to minister to people and say, the Lord can cleanse you. I know it because He cleansed me. I'm not better than you. I'm not worse than you. We're all sinners. And I'm telling you, my life is different than it used to be. There is nothing more powerful than truth that is supported by clear evidence. We can speak truth, but if we don't live it out, then we're just a bunch of loudmouths. We cannot speak truth and live it out, and that makes us hypocrites. But when we speak truth and we back it up, Oh, the power is so amazing. That's what happened with the Gentiles. And they say, you don't believe it? Look at their lives. God has redeemed them. And our lives should have the same effect on everybody we're around. Speaking the truth in love. Presenting your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is our reasonable act of worship. So we can tell people, And we can say, look at me. Don't look at me. Look at what God's done in me. This is true. And you can be part of it too. Let's bow our heads. If you want that kind of evidence in your own life, and you know this morning, Paul, I just, it's just not there. I'm not feeling it. I'm discouraged. I don't feel like I'm close to the Lord. I want to encourage you right now between you and the Lord. I want to encourage you to ask the Lord. Lord, remove all the sin. Cleanse me. There are things I'm holding on to that are, that are inhibiting my growth and my joy. Lord, remove all the selfish bias, all the things that I want, all the things that I think are right that aren't necessarily in line with you. They're just what I like. Lord, free me of that because I'm holding on to it too much. And Lord, 
make your work, make your transformation obvious in my life. Oh, Lord, I ask that for my own life this morning. I ask that for our church. That what you have done by your mercy would be obvious. That as we stand for you and speak truth, that people would know that it's true because they see the change in our own lives. Lord, we know we're going to face opposition. We know there's going to be resistance. But I pray this morning that we will not be discouraged. We know even as we're sitting here that the enemy is already starting his plan. He's already trying to discourage and, and, and disagree and cut away what we have learned this morning and what you have told us and to say that it's false. But Lord, we ask you to eliminate him. You've given us victory through Christ. You have changed and transformed our lives. And Lord, you ask us now to live as those who are redeemed. Lord, you are opening up opportunities for us to minister to the people of this city and this state an area that desperately needs you. And Lord, you have placed us here for that purpose. So advance our ministry so that we can reach people for Christ. Advance our ministry, Lord, so that we can encourage and strengthen those who are hurting and show them the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Advance our ministry so that we can equip and minister to and build up the body. Advance our ministry, Lord, so that we would be a people that is comfortable calling on your name. That that would be a powerful aspect of our ministry, that we are people that pray. Lord, this is not for our glory. How dare we even let that thought enter our minds. This is for your glory. This is so you would be advanced. This is so people would know you. Lord, give us a confidence, I pray this morning, and a fresh zeal for you. Remove, as I prayed earlier, Lord, anything that would hinder that, any discouragement, any doubt, any fear, any sin that's blocking us this morning. Remove that right now, I pray, from our midst. And Lord, do a new work. We thank you and praise you for Christ. We thank you for what you have done in our lives through him. Now, Lord, we live it in praise and honor to you. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done. And we love you. In Jesus' name.